All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. This is Colin Schatz. I am Seth Partnow. Uh, special episode today. Well, they're all special episodes, but uh, a special episode today. We did it without, uh, without an audience because my guest, Chris Herring, is up against a time crunch. So I wanted to be respectful of his time and, and chat about the stuff that uh, I wanted to talk about. Uh, senior writer for Sports Illustrated and the author of, I can I say this, New York Times bestselling, Blood in the Garden, uh, the, the, the flagrant history of the 90s Knicks. Um, Chris, how you doing? I'm I'm good, man. Um, <laughs> I appreciate you having me on and, and the nice intro. But um, as you know, it's always a pleasure to to be on with you. And um, it's my first time really talking to you since your book came out. So congratulations to you as well. Um, just a really wonderful job you did with that. And you know, as I said, even in the endorsement for it, um, just a really really smooth breakdown for stuff that I think people think of as just kind of this apocalyptic oh no there's no way i could possibly understand um you know and it's just uh it's bite-sized you know it's kind of the way i felt when i read through it but I, you should be really proud of that well i i appreciate that but uh but i i i um you know we were we were writing our books at the same time and yeah um uh i i kind of marveled at the time that your job was much harder than mine because i was sort of i was interviewing myself basically for much of much of mine and you were I mean, how many people did you end up talking to um, that that sort of made its way into either into the book or into the background for for the book? Oh, sure. No, I mean, just about everybody I spoke to was, was useful in some way. It was it was definitely more than two hundred people. I think it was closer to like two hundred five, two hundred ten. But um, and then just so much for all the people that wouldn't talk to me. So much of having to see if they've written books before books that maybe they, you know, their comments have been included in. So it's, you know, and now as I'm kind of looking around at potential second books and second book subjects, doing the same thing just to figure out how much stuff has been out there before. So Riley's written a couple of books and, you know, Doc Rivers had written a book and um, John Starks. And, but then you have a lot of other kind of, you know, more uh, ancillary characters or, you know, opposing characters. Reggie Miller's done a book and, Everybody else, so it's just you spend so much time reading that stuff and uh, reading Jerry West's book to you know try to really outline every time he's been uh, Pat Riley's been mentioned in that. So it, it's a long, arduous process, but it's look the way I view it, and this is just the honest truth is that um, I don't know if anything is harder, easier. You know, fiction authors may not have to spend the time researching, but then again, you get people like Colt. Um, you know, Colson Whitehead, for instance, who is doing fiction, but it's like historical fiction that's actually rooted in something that's real, more or less. So that takes a lot of work to kind of make it real enough while also being fictional. Um, and then you got people that are complete fiction that are just kind of in their own imagination. It takes an amount of creativity that I can't even fathom to do that and could never do myself. Um, then you've got people that are writing something and trying to just write it kind of an explanatory, fa uh, you know, fashion, um, or just trying to kind of put a thought out there that hasn't been out there or that hasn't been explained very well. Um, and I think that's kind of the, if I had to kind of pick on the Venn diagram where yours lands, the experience that you have in an NBA front office and just kind of as an NBA thinker, but also trying to break down concepts that a lot of people are <laughs> frankly afraid of sometimes, um, that are just part of the way that people think, um, I don't think that's easy. So, you know, I, I don't think anything's really easy or harder. I will say that maybe it's a little bit harder to try to do something 
like writing about something that's current. So another person was working on the book at the same time we were was Marin Fader with the honest book. And I kept saying to her, like one, she's trying to write an ending for a book that she doesn't know where it really ends. Um, you know, so ironically, Giannis wins the title a couple weeks after her book comes out, or I'm sorry, a couple weeks before her book came out. Um, you know, but she obviously turned the book in well before that, but she's trying to talk to people that are currently, you know, attached to Giannis where people are afraid to do that. People don't want to betray him. People don't want him, don't want to talk to her when, you know, Giannis might be upset about it. Uh, if he wants that stuff to stay private that's a lot harder than trying to write about something that's 20 or 30 years old in my, like in my case, but, um, but it's a hard task either way. And I, I don't want you to sell yourself shorter for anybody else to do that. It's really hard to write a good book. And um, like I said, I really enjoyed yours and thought that, you know, even for somebody like me, there's stuff in there that you learn or things that you look at maybe a different way, just because your experience is not mine. I, I think it's hard to write a bad book too. I think it's just hard to write a book. Uh, I think that's, that's, that's the biggest <laughs> takeaway. Um, what, so like, you know, I, first of all, I appreciate all of it, but I think the, the, um, one of the things that, and I've told you this off, off, sort of offline, one of the things I found most impressive about the way you wrote the book was, um, how contemporaneous kind of the account feels to something that happened, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and, and you, you, um, you, you did a you did a, 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 a pretty masterful job of like weaving the story of that two hundred some people together to give sort of an in the room experience and and your your writing style is obviously very different than his but I mean it's it's I would you know some of the great basketball writing like covering a single team with the past obviously breaks of the game is is sort of the, the held up but but uh, but you know that it does have that same sort of fly on the locker room wall quality to it which i thought was i thought was was very impressive and it was very it was very a very light touch in terms of of sort of 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 using kind of stories afterwards to um kind of illustrate what was happening in the moment and give it some almost um give it almost some 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 like uh some impetus some drive to even though there's even though we know how the story ends there's still some uh um, inertia is the wrong word, but still some impetus, like driving it forward. I know what you mean by that. And first of all, thank you. Um, that was the hope, really, was that when I sat down, and man, I, I'm sure I burned them by now, or you know, they're in some garbage disposal somewhere. But my thought, my hope at the time, was to basically put together like a day by day calendar of an eight year stretch, um, what the team was doing every day, where they were. You know, if there was a really funny anecdote from a day or, you know, a recollection that someone had that they just told me about generally, I then would go back and try to piece it up with when and where it might have happened um, so that I had all that stuff in a chronological sense. Um, because like you said, you, you it, it reads in a contemporaneous fashion. But the benefit that I have writing it this much after the fact is that we do know how things turned out. And again, that's something that maybe Mirren didn't have, for example. Not maybe, she didn't know that the Bucks were going to win a championship. Um, but for me, I know that the Knicks didn't win one. So when you look at things that were kind of stumbling blocks that they might not have known were stumbling blocks at the time, like the fact that, you know, um, the Knicks are going to be, you know, half the roster is going to get suspended in 1997 for coming off the bench against the Heat, then you've got 
elements of that where you can kind of leave breadcrumbs about and foreshadow that that's going to happen, uh, both between a fight in 93 with Greg Anthony coming off the bench and sucker punching Kevin Johnson in street clothes, but also can, can the Derek Harper. There? Like, Please. Uh, that his 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 shirt is still like burned into my memory from when that <laughs> happened. Um, it's Mine still too. Like, oh my goodness. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. You're completely fine. I think it's burned into a lot of our memories. Uh, it's the first thing that everybody mentions when you ask them about it. Um, but yeah, that that fight and then the one in '94 with Derek Harper and JoJo English against the Bulls, where David Stern was sitting in the crowd. Those two things, both those things and, you know, and, and I think this is what I tied to it that maybe was more behind the scenes that wasn't out there. Um, Bob Salmi, who I think to this day still works with ESPN and ABC as a film guy, basically, kind of like a, a someone that sets up the telestrator for Van Gundy and Mark Jackson, but also a guy that coached those two uh, or, or, you know, was with those two with the Knicks during those years as an assistant coach. Um, he would splice and put film and, and tape together for the team. And he put one together on his own, just kind of as a, at the time, kind of telling them to be careful that, you know, that they led the league in flagrants, they led the league in technicals and that the conversation around them was starting to shift from how good are they to, are they too dirty to be part of the league? Like, are they doing the league a disservice? And that was, you know, the way that, for instance, New Orleans right now, has been playing really, really well for a while, or, you know, at least relative to the way they started, they've been playing well for a while, but the conversation is just dominated by Zion Williamson, even though he hasn't been on the court all year. Um, similar, Similarly, Bob Salmi was saying, we're playing really good basketball, but it's being overshadowed by all this other stuff about our physicality, about whether we're dirty, about whether we're over the edge and we can't control our emotions. And unless we break through that by just winning and putting some of the silliness aside, that's going to be the way we're remembered. And so he put together a video more or less telling them that where um, he played uh, Billy Joel's angry old man and, or uh, angry young man. And he, you know, he, he basically kind of warned them about that through a three, four minute video. And so I thought that was kind of a brilliant sort of thing to tap into and to use in the middle, you know, the first third of the book is that he kind of, even their coaches were aware of the fact that they were kind of this over the edge, over the line sort of team that they could be brilliant. They could be great when they really wanted to and when they put their minds to it and when they could focus. But when they lost that focus or when they got too overly emotional, um, that they could kind of lose sight of themselves a little bit. Certainly John Starks was guilty of that. Um, and that it could just kind of throw them out of whack in a way where it might cost them something meaningful, which over time I think it did. So, um, you know, it, it, if it feels contemporaneous, it's because of stuff like that, that you want to make sure that you're leading. You don't want to throw a complete curveball at the reader when you actually have stuff that lines up the right way and allows you to kind of put everything in its perfect box with, with storytelling. Sure. I want to I want to come back to kind of the 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 reputational and sort of how it affected um, the, the the larger league because I think that, uh, that as as you mentioned in the book and I've, I think you've heard heard you talk about it uh, otherwise is there there's a lot of of things about how the modern game is administrated I guess I would say uh, that were a reaction to those Knicks teams but first I want to just ask a couple about a, a couple of of kind of of uh, kind of amusing Riley anecdotes 
uh, from the book. Um, <laughs> okay. The first, the first is the car thing, and I've told and I've told people this. Um, you know, I think I've I've mentioned this to you, but I've talked to other people. I'm Team Riley on this one. Um, for 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 those who for for those who haven't read the book, there's a scene where where uh, uh, Riley is overhearing uh, Dave Checkett's on the phone with his wife, who's about to buy a car. And first she tries to buy a green car, and he's like, no, that's the Celtics color. Then she tries to buy a red car, and she's like, are you crazy? That's the Bulls colors. Um, and so I just, you know, from my perspective, I thought that that did not seem unreasonable. Um, even though in the book it's kind of used as as uh, illustration of, of this is a madman. Um, <laughs> I, I, yes, he's a madman, but I think there's a method to that in terms of, of you know, there is... Um, this is sort of something that surprised me going to the going from the outside to the inside is there is a certain amount of I don't know um, rah rah I mean maybe in in the, in the military con- context it would be like hoorah or something like that that seems a little silly but then you get inside and you realize how long and how hard you have to work for these things and it starts to make sense so I, I yeah gonna... yeah no I mean Riley it's funny because. Even something like that. I remember when you texted me that, uh, my first thought was like, okay, Seth is the first person that said that he's Team Riley on this. But I think that that's what it is, and that's what it comes back to, is that for me, I've never worked within a team for a team um, as a coach. I've never, you know, so I've never had, and I don't want to say that you can't be wired in such a competitive fashion to where you can't feel that strongly or that care that much about something like that without having coached or without having worked for a team. But in my case, that probably is what it is, is that for me, I'm a neutral observer. Um, You know, I was a fan as a kid of of the Bulls. Um, Michael Jordan left and that that quickly kind of went away because the Bulls were horrible. Um, And then, you know, when I covered the league and you start to see these guys as people that are doing this for a living and you see the way that they kind of, you know, people tweet at them about fantasy numbers and stuff like that. To me, I kind of wanted to dissociate myself dissociate myself from the idea of fandom, and so it just kind of died off on its own. But when you're in it and you have a connection to it and you hear about I mean, you know, to go all the way full circle with the Bucks and everything else, uh, like Maren had in her book, is it related to Jason Kidd? And maybe some people did view this as being over the line, wanting every player on the team to be in an iPhone chat as opposed to having the green bubble come up with certain text messages instead of blue, you know, and, and, and basically ostracizing the one person that didn't have an iPhone, you know, you either get that or you don't. I, I could never see myself being wired that competitively or being that serious about being on the same page. Um, certainly as it relates to my boss's wife's car color, but I do think it, my reason for including it aside from, you know, the fact that I thought it was a great anecdote, it's one of the clearest possible examples you could ever have of how seriously or at least on the surface or the way this guy presents himself how seriously this guy took the idea of being on the same page as him and there were like so many examples between him and mason and him and check as it related to ten thousand dollars that riley felt like he was owed but that was essentially what this came down to granted ownership and the idea of ownership from the knicks or the heat was a big factor and the biggest factor. But if you don't see eye to eye with someone on the idea of $10,000, how on earth are you supposed to try to bridge the gap when you're talking about an ownership stake? 
that the team doesn't feel like they can give you or that you deserve and you want that. And so it just kind of speaks to how far apart they were with that. That was my reason for including it. But it, it is funny because, like I said, so far you're the only person that said that to me, but you're also one of the few people that I talk to on a semi-regular basis that, that works for a team or that has worked for a team. And so um, I, I understood you understanding it, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that's like, it's, it's sort of a, a, a costless gesture, but like not doing it would be the kind of, like if every car in the parking lot is, is blue, blue, blue. And then it's, you've got like Celtics green, in like president <laughs> right. of the team's parking lot. It's just, that's one of those, it, it's, you know, it's, we, we talk about record scratches when a guy like doesn't shoot like a, like an open corner three or something. It's like, what? <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's, it, it's, you know, um, it, it's one of those things that probably doesn't matter, but if it does, it matters a lot. So yeah. like, why not? I agree with you. Um, mm-hmm. the, the other thing I wanted to is, is like, I, I said this tongue in cheek is, and I believe it was talking about like, like Bob Salmi, um, in, in, in the book was there's a point where like, um, for as, as, as crusty and old school as he's kind of viewed, uh, I don't want to say invented, but Riley like kind of brought analytics to the NBA game in, in many ways. With a lot of the stuff that he was having, he was having Salmi kind of chart and pull out and 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 generate on on the game. I think you know we're so far removed from kind of hand tracking stuff now with all the technology you have. Um, that's a lot of what it is. Is just you know kind of fancy counting in a way that that uh, uh, captures context. So I, I thought I was very amused by that because that's like, yeah, that's that's sort of the whole point of, you know, of of the stuff that ended up in my book is like you is getting gathering this more information so you know more so you can evaluate better so you can make better decisions yeah. so you can predict more. And I, I was um, and that's, uh, you know, um, and that was sort of the, the, the point of my book is is to try to illustrate that this isn't that what I do and what that what that was is only different because of the improvement of technology and the fact that we've built on the stuff that, you know, the people, you know, charting games by hand, whether it was Bob Salmi or Dean Oliver or whoever back in the day. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think when I came across that stuff and when I was talking to people about that, I immediately knew I was going to use it. If for only the fact that people, I, I, thought off the bat, and I remember seeing this comment from some people, um, like I can relate a little bit with Jeff Perlman, who tweeted a little while ago, like if you're not, he, he you know, his book uh, Showtime was made into the HBO series Winning Time that just premiered uh, on Sunday on HBO. And he said something like, look, uh, obviously this is a high point for me and like a life achievement for me to see this come to the big, not the big screen, but you know, on TV. Um, if you don't like the show, that's fine, but I don't quite understand why you would go out of your way to like tweet me to say that. And it, I had a similar feeling when the book was coming out or like, you know, in the moments before the book came out, the months before the books came out, uh, people are like, God, I would never read this. And it's like, okay. Um, you know, or like, God, I would never read this because the Knicks, like, why would you glorify something that the Knicks were just like either a bad team, which they obviously weren't during that era or the idea that. Um, when you think about it, that the Knicks were a team that just beat up on people, which to be fair, they did, but I think there was more to them than that. And that was kind of the point of the book. And one of the biggest points I thought was that 
you didn't want to just make them out to be cavemen. They actually were really good at certain things. They had real skill defensively. Um, I don't think they had a ton of skill offensively, but they probably weren't as bad as they were made out to be. But they had a real thinker in Pat Riley and obviously a great coach in Pat Riley, which is why I kind of made him the, the lead character in the book, even more so than Ewing or Mason or anybody else. Um, and they were ahead of the game analytically. And that's kind of, I don't think people really see that as being kind of something that they're used to seeing on the same page. They normally think either caveman style of playing because you don't shoot threes or don't do this or don't do that. Um, or you're really, really ahead of the game. The Knicks were playing a really kind of antiquated physical style because they were just beating up on people, but they were also doing that in conjunction with the idea of tracking closeouts, tracking charges, tracking efficiency. And I felt like that was really important to include that because I don't think many people would have known it. And Riley, you know, even from a film standpoint, was someone that was ahead of his time just in terms of trying to, really be good in the clutch to know what sorts of plays were coming in the clutch. And his video coordinator said, I'd never worked with anybody that did that. I never even knew that was really a thing to look at that. So the fact that Pat was asking me to break it down for him, we, we had so much work to be doing, but it made us a lot better in those situations. And that was what Pat really cared about was that he felt like defensively he could cold teams even all game long or hold them to a low point total. And that it was going to come down to the last five or 10 minutes of the game that was why he wanted his guys conditioned a certain way physically, but also why he wanted a better sense of what teams are going to run and what sorts of plays they were going to call in those last five minutes of games. It's funny you describe their, like their physicality as antiquated because it feels antiquated now, but I think, um, you know, this is, this is sort of the, the, the misremembering of the sort of the pre bad boys, I would say mm -hmm. is, is it was not really like, on a play-to-play -play basis, it was not actually that physical. There was maybe there were a lot of like a lot more cheap shots than we see now, and I think this this Knicks teams might might be why a big part of why that we don't see those anymore. But just like kind of the, the the sort of the grinding physicality of of first those Piston teams and then the Knicks teams you're writing about was a you know it may have aesthetically been a step backwards, but in terms of strategic advantage. I, I don't think there's any question that it was a step forward for 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 those teams. It was an it was a competitive advantage. Yeah, there, there's no question. I mean, and and you know, look, people that were surprised that Riley went with this style of play. If he'd had a Lakers type roster, which nobody really did during those years, then they probably used the same style. I, I think what Riley showed when he went to the Knicks was that he had. Um, a chameleon sort of nature about his coaching where he would try to, and I think that's what pop has become so known for is that his teams can kind of shape shift with the times. Um, so Riley only has been with three organizations, you know, as a coach, but I think that really he played to the Lakers strengths, which if you read Jeff's book and know the history of Showtime, that was part of why they respected Riley so much at the beginning is that even Paul Westhead, he won a championship with the Lakers, but then, got fired because the team got tired of playing his style because he tried to change the up-tempo style they played. He wanted them to kind of have more of like a set offense after they lost one year. Um, Riley, basically, when he took the job, he just said, we're going to go back to doing what we did when we won the title, which is just to play up-tempo, to be kind of more freewheeling and, and just play fast and not dictate exactly where Magic Johnson is going with the ball each time. And they liked that. 
And so Riley kind of let them do that, but he had ideas of his own. Um, and to give it full context and perspective, um, he wanted those Lakers teams to be very physical. They were not like soft teams um, by any means. I My book editor and my literary agent both wanted me to title my book about the Knicks, No Layups Allowed. Um, and I kind of looked at him and I said, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. And when they said why I wasn't open to it, I said, well, for starters, Riley did make that comment and use that phrase. But the first time he used it was not in conjunction with the Knicks. It was with the Lakers because he, he wanted them to be physical and nasty too. the, the up-tempo, you know, full court, you know, press or not full court press, but you know, just the up and down style that they played and the flashy style that they used that overshadowed the physicality that they had on defense and the fact that Riley wanted them to have a nastiness on defense too. So, but he used the no layups allowed phrasing with them as well. So, um, you know, I just think that more about what Riley wanted to do with those Lakers came across with the Knicks because let's face it, they didn't have that much offense to speak of. And um, the defense was what was going to kind of really be their bread and butter from one game to the next. And they had the bodies to carry out the sort of style that Riley wanted to use. And, and that probably played into the types of players they acquired as well. I mean, he, he sort Absolutely. Of, this is, okay, well, okay, is, is James Worthy uh, the player best equipped to play a, a grindy physical style? Uh, probably not. Um, doesn't mean, well, let's, change, let's trade James Worthy. <laughs> like, right. Like, <laughs> like, uh, I'd, I'd rather have Charles Oakley. No, you wouldn't. Um, it's, <laughs> it, uh, that, so it, so there's, a, there's a little bit of that, and I think that is, I mean, you know, the fact that they were already a massively successful team, like, drags you down that path a little bit. But that's also, um, that is good coaching to not, well, this guy doesn't fit exactly my preferred box at all, so get rid of him. And there are plenty of coaches, not just in the NBA, but kind of across sports that, that kind of, he doesn't, he doesn't play the way I want to play, so I've got no use for him, which is... Now, I will, I will say this, though, Seth. I mean, it's, it's the one thing... I had some people that have, you know, critiqued the book just on, on Goodreads, Amazon, whatever. They're like, I, one person said, I thought it was interesting. They're like, I, I thought the book was kind of painful in some ways because it really didn't editorialize. And I wish it had taken more of a, a stance on certain things. And I didn't really feel like that was my job. I thought it was, you know, good enough to kind of bring somebody into the room and be a fly on the wall. But the one thing that I think I came closest to editorializing, if I did, if I didn't, was Charles Smith, who I think Riley really didn't see him as fitting the team. Now, obviously they used him, but Riley made an effort to basically say, are we sure we want to sign this guy? And, you know, obviously I wish I'd talked to Pat or been able to talk to Pat because maybe he could give better context. Maybe he was saying, do we want to sign him for big, big money? Which is different than saying, do we want to sign him at all? But I think Riley saw him as not being a perfect fit from a toughness standpoint. He was more of a finesse guy that, quite frankly, even back then, probably should have been playing the four or the five, which is where he played prior. Um, the Knicks slotted him in as a small forward. And Riley just, you know, from the first day of practice, Riley did not see him as a fit. He immediately told the trainer, the team trainer, to work with him, um, or the, the strength and conditioning coach to work with him to get him to drop 20 pounds so that he could play the three and guard the Scotty Pippins of the league. Um, which is a really tough task when you're 6'10", 6'11", however tall Charles Smith is, and have played all your career, your professional career, your college career in the post, um, to have to play alongside Oakley and Ewing in the starting lineup when, theoretically, you could have started Mason. 
um, and played him as your small forward, a guy that had more ball skills, um, and then played Smith off the bench and let him play more of a natural four or five. Um, not to mention that Riley was just really tough on the guy as far as, you know, the anecdote I have in there that I think Harvey Ayrton had been the first one to report, um, that Charles Smith had chronic knee issues and one game, you know, I think he'd had two or three procedures all within the same year, two during the season that were knee cleanouts. The first one really didn't take very well, um, which is kind of rare to hear about that now, but I guess, you know, we were still on the, the beginning stages of some of these surgeries as it related to knees. And Charles Smith just never felt comfortable, so he had another procedure. And finally, during that season, you know, I'm sure Riley was getting to the point where he's like, are you ever going to come back, um, you know, from this uh, clean-out? And Charles Smith walks in the locker room with a suit, and the rest of the Nick players are there watching Riley right on the blackboard, talk about the game plan for that night's game. Smith walks in the locker room with a suit, and Riley stops writing, turns around and says, Charles if, if I needed you to give me one minute tonight to win a championship, could you give me that one minute? And Charles says, yes. But then Riley responds to him, then what the hell are you doing in that suit? And I don't even know what a player's supposed to do in a moment like that. Like, you can't say no because you'll be written off forever if you do that in front of the whole team. You say yes, but you're not physically able to play. Um, I, I don't know if bullying is the word to use like it feels a little strong but it's like you're kind of egging somebody on to play against their will to some extent um because you are suggesting that you don't think they're you you think that they're not telling the truth about the injury you think that they have something to prove with the injury but that was a team that constantly had guys that were playing through broken toes broken fingers um you know broken noses and so i'm not sure if he felt like charles needed to do it to kind of level up with his teammates, but it just, there was a lot of stuff that Riley did and said during that era that wouldn't be allowed now. I don't think, um, as it relates to personnel and, you know, walling off the team psychologists from the players and stuff like that, obviously that wouldn't fly. But I also think in that one example, they probably could have gotten more out of Charles Smith, but even if they couldn't have, I do think there's something to be said for the fact that Charles Smith was not the same player physically, but I would also argue probably not mentally, and spiritually after the Riley experience. Sure. I mean, I think that, that like today, I think there's probably a better understanding of sort of the risk versus reward of a regular season game versus, and the other side, and the other side is that is like, um, just if, if anyone's ever been in the arena, watch Kevin McHale walk now. And then, 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 Mm -hmm. and he, that's because he played in the finals on a broken foot. So like, that's a, you know, could you in the finals do this? Well, yeah, because it's the finals. But that's, yeah. Um, so move it, like, well, let's move forward to today then. Um, this is sort of, I think this is a subtext throughout your, your book. And, I, and frankly, it's a subtext of how today's game is talked about by kind of the players of that era. Um, is, you know, there's a lot of, oh, um, I don't know. I, for example, I guess a character in, a prominent character in your book um, has recently um, had some opinions about how uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo would, would have fared in that era. <laughs> right. Uh, and so maybe that's the natural way to kind of, kind of uh, in a sort of a backwards way, talk about how the response to those Knicks has shaped how the NBA operates today in terms of, of how it is, how like that style of um, 
if one was going to be a negative on it, that style of let's just foul every time and see if they'll call them uh, doesn't play as much today. Yeah. I mean, that, I, I, I don't know if this was your question or if you intended for it to be part of it. Yeah, it was a pretty ridiculous comment that um, that somehow, yeah, I mean, obviously it goes without saying that Giannis wouldn't be able to play in that NBA or if he did, that he would come off the bench. I'm, I'm sorry, there's no MVP from the last three eras that couldn't play in one era or the other. They would all have a place. And um, it seems backwards to me that saying that a guy that can't shoot in an era or that is not a great shooter, a good shooter in this era would somehow be not as good in an era where shooting was less of a premium. Like that's just, I, I, I struggle to understand how any of that makes sense, let alone the athleticism difference between Giannis. I mean, even within today's context, how athletic he is relative to everybody else, but take him and put him back in the nineties. Um, you're talking about a guy that would have been competing with Michael for MVPs during that era. I just didn't even understand the comment. Um, but, you know, I think everything should be taken with a grain of salt. Charles Oakley, um, in his own book, which, you know, I, I haven't read it all the way through. I've read portions of it. Um, he he says the Knicks didn't have a number one option during the 90s, which, look, wow, look, I mean, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, I think everything needs to be taken with a grain of salt when we're talking about his his relationship with Ewing. And the fact that, you know, and I mentioned this in mind, that I think he very clearly, but, you know, maybe in his mind, understandably, um, wanted Ewing to have his back when the whole Dolan thing came up a few years ago. This point is like four years ago, something like that, four or five years ago um, at the Garden when Charles Oakley was dragged out of the Garden. Um, He took stock specifically of which players from those Knicks years had his back publicly. Um, Ewing was not someone that said anything. Um, okay, Patrick Ewing is also a guy that was aiming for an NBA head coaching job. Uh, and, you know, if any team was going to be a possibility, you would imagine the Knicks would. So, of course, Ewing wasn't going to say anything. But also, it's not his obligation to say anything um, in support of Oakley. Um, some people did. Some people did not. Some people worked for the team, so there's no way they were going to do that, knowing Jim Dolan. So whatever. But I think you have to view it through that prism that, there's plenty to criticize Patrick for from those years, I think, but the fact that it's all happened like at the same time and all since that moment, pretty much for Oakley, I do think speaks volumes about the fact that, um, you know, that he's been upset about that and that he didn't feel as if Patrick had his back, but he called, you know, to go full circle with it. He called Patrick a second option um, during the nineties. I mean, a top at worst, what, what would we put Patrick as maybe like a, six seven from that era at worst which that's nothing to sneeze at you know during one of the best eras of, of basketball um certainly one of the two or three best centers of that era um you know if you're if you're talking about Shaq being kind of the era that came after him um so there's nothing to be ashamed of with that but Oakley then calls himself the third option on that team if Ewing is the second option Oakley is the third option and I'm thinking like hmm I don't even think Oakley was the the fourth leading scorer on that team. Um, You know, he he was not the second option within their lineup. I mean, John Starks clearly was. Um, Then you have Charles Smith, who was kind of their number three option. So I don't even know where that comes from, the idea that Oakley was ever a third option or even a fourth option, really. Mason was the guy that, you know, that handled the ball a decent amount during those regimes as well. 
So I, I, I didn't know where that came from, but it's, it's, it's revisionist history in my mind. And the idea that Giannis somehow couldn't have been successful. Um, I don't know. It, it's interesting. A lot of guys from that team really seem to embrace today's sport. Um, the ones that are more involved in the game now tend to be that way. Um, so you talk about somebody like Doc Rivers, for instance, um, who was a starting point guard on one of those teams. He feels like the Knicks got shafted in some ways as far as the way the rules operated and the, the way that some of the rules changed. But he's also the first one to say, thank God they changed them because the league needed badly to evolve. Um, the physicality, to some extent, was not going to be good for the sport anymore. The scores were dragging. So I, I understand when people say, thank goodness we moved on. What I don't understand is people that say um, guys from this era would somehow struggle in a previous era, uh, or at least like a Giannis-type player. If you want to say that about a marginal guy, have at it. But you're you're not going to make that argument about a superstar that would have somehow struggled in an era where people couldn't shoot. Like, I, you know, there was no space back then. Giannis would have been fine. Um, even if there had been no space, Giannis's arms are long enough to where he could have dunked from the free throw line. So I'm, I'm pretty sure he would have been okay. Fast break still existed in that era. So I'm pretty sure he would have been okay. He would have lived at the free throw line with the way the Knicks would have hacked him. So I guess, I guess free throws are, 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 are a good place to get. So from your perspective, like how, how do we see the influence of that Knicks team? In, in today's game, the game that that almost could not be more stylistically divergent from what they were trying to do. Um, but I, I, I do think, and I think that, that, that you also agree, that that um, they have a profound influence on, on what we see today. Uh, what, what, what would you say are kind of the through lines there? Sure. Uh, I appreciate the question. Um, you know, it's funny. I didn't go in thinking that they'd change the sport. You know, I wish I had had that pitch when I was trying to, you know, to sell the book to publishers when they say kind of what's the book about? What are you hoping to do with it? Um, I didn't really say that I thought that they changed the NBA, but the truth is they have. They did. Um, I think that one of the clearest through lines um, that we have really is that you wouldn't have or at least you wouldn't have had it as quickly the spacing that you have in the game. You wouldn't have. Uh, the the freedom of movement that you have in today's game if it hadn't been for the Knicks basically telling everybody that would listen, or maybe not at the time, but now, that they were actively trying to hit people and, and slow them down and discourage them from coming into the lane, um, that they were hand-checking the crap out of everybody, which was legal for a lot of the time, um, that they were going to try to put people on their behinds when they came to the basket, these were all things that the league tried to do away with. Uh, the Knicks were also, as we said before, they were using analytics. They had a guy that led the league in three-pointers made. They had a guy that led the league in three-point percentage one year in Hubert Davis. Starks and Davis both were guys that were shooting a lot of threes. So they were not complete dinosaurs from that standpoint offensively, maybe at times, but not some of the guys were not. But defensively, they were the reason that the league shifted a lot of the rules flagrant fouls in particular. Um, I have in the book that Charles Oakley had more flagrants by himself in 93 than 15 other teams did as teams. Uh, you know, he had more than twice as many as any other player that year. So, you know, the Knicks were the reason that flagrant ones and flagrant twos came into to play. And the reason that flagrants were now going to be penalized 
um, if you had more than a certain number of them. So that was the Knicks. Um, they, they were a reason that the three-point line moved in. I, I was able to get access to some numbers. Uh, Harvey Pollack, um, a, a statistician and the guy that, if you remember that 100-point piece of paper that uh, Will Chamberlain was holding up, Harvey Pollack wrote that down because he was keeping score that night, and he took all, he took all these statistics down even before they were official stats. Um, and, you know, he tracked illegal defense calls and stuff back then. The Knicks had way more of them than anybody else. Uh, and so they were the reason that the league started making those, some of those rules, but also some of the rules as it related to bringing the three-point line in, which seems like it would compress the game more, but it actually did the opposite. It actually spaced it out a little bit more because when you bring the three-point line in, guys are going to shoot from closer in. They're going to feel more tempted to take that shot. And as a defender, maybe you're okay with letting a guy take a 21-footer if it's a two, but if it's a 21-footer and it's a three, you're not going to want him to take that shot uncontested. So you're going to come out a little bit further away from the rim to defend it. So it spaces the game a little bit more that way. So the Knicks were part of the reason that happened. The Knicks were the reason that all the fighting rules changed where used to be that you could swing on someone, but if you didn't make contact, you weren't going to be penalized for that uh, or you weren't going to be suspended. So they changed that rule. If you left the bench, you know, after the, the Derek Harper, Joe English fight, you were going to get suspended uh, for leaving the bench during an altercation. So that rule changed. Um, there were, there was any number of things. There were four or five major things that all shifted. Hand checking was a Derek Harper kind of related rule where he was, the league's elite hand checker at the time, the where he was the first guy they showed video of when they were trying to emphasize what would no longer be allowed. Derek Harper was the poster child for it. So the Knicks were at the forefront of a lot of those things changing. And, you know, the Knicks struggled a little bit defensively from having the best defense three years in a row to then kind of struggling a little bit to try to keep up with some of the rules changes just because so many things all changed at once. Um, but a lot of those changes helped the league get to where they are now where, the league was very clear when they changed the rules and saying that we want the game to be based more around skill and not physicality and more around talent than physicality. And so it became more of a shooting perimeter based game. And that was because the Knicks were trying to basically level the score and level the playing field by keeping it as physical as they could without all the offensive talent in the world. So um, I think there's a really clear through line that I did not know when I first took on the project but uh, there's a reason you won't see teams like the Knicks anymore, the 90s Knicks anymore. And a lot of it is because they were so physical that the league legislated out a lot of that stuff. There's almost a, a straight line between the Knicks and Steve Nash winning consecutive MVPs. Oh, yeah. Which is, that's it, which is it's very, it's, it's sort of a, a, a pretty fascinating, like butterfly flops its wings kind of moments. Um, I've only got you for a couple more minutes. So uh, if, 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 if you got, I, I want to, See, get some of your thoughts on on this current season. Um, sure, this, this is um, um, really because of 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 kind of first of all a lot of the the COVID stuff early in the year, but then just how tightly packed all the teams are. This is one of the less predictable what I think is going to happen in the playoffs um, kind of seasons I can remember. Um, who are you? Who are you kind of expecting big things from as we kind of head towards the end of the season and into the postseason? Well, I, I can't ignore the team, you know, and it'll feel somewhat relevant to the conversation we've been having. I think the Heat have looked really, really good. They have not been whole 
um, for the entirety of the season, certainly. Obviously, Bam missed a lot of time, so did Jimmy. Uh, Lowry's been out lately and is just now getting back. Um, they're going to be interesting because we haven't really seen them at full strength um, for much of the season, and now it seems like they're getting there. Tyler Hero has obviously been playing really well as of late and had a, a really nice streak of, was it five, six games in a row with 20 off the bench? Um, so we're, we're going to kind of have to see where that goes. Uh, they they made a lot of additions in the offseason. I think that was why it was that they wanted to, at full strength, they they wanted to kind of put themselves up against everybody else and say, try to score on us. And there are moments where it looks like that, where they just kind of swarm. So I'm intrigued by them. Uh, I am really, you know who I'm really looking forward to watching? Not necessarily because... I think for sure they're going to win it or because I think that they've got a good chance to win it, but just the Grizzlies, because we're not used to seeing teams this young. I won't say inexperienced because they've been in the playoffs now. And even the year before that, they were in a play in situation with regards to the bubble. So they had a chance to make those playoffs. Um, but it's very clear. The, the Grizzlies are not worried. You know, they're not scared of anybody. They've got a legitimate top. I mean, I would probably say, this is probably too conservative, but like a top 10 guy, at least this season, clearly a top 10 guy on their roster who makes them feel confident going into these games or helps them feel confident. Um, and I think that too many people have looked at them and said, oh, they're young. Like they won't, you know, this is just, it's a nice story, but it's just a nice story. Um, I'm really intrigued. Like if you put the Grizzlies up against a healthier Lakers team um, and let's say somehow you get, well, I, I haven't looked at the stands. I don't know if it's realistic that the the Lakers could even end up in the in the seventh spot um, as a team. So maybe they wouldn't even be relevant. But like, if you put the Grizzlies up against a team that I think most people would see as having equivalent or better talent. So if you had like Anthony Davis and LeBron, and they're relatively healthy going into that series, I think the Grizzlies would be like last year's version of the Suns, who also had to play those Lakers, by the way. Um, where a lot of people are, like, blown away if they win that series and then they actually do well, or they're not, and they say, oh, well, they only got through that round because of injuries. No, I mean, the Grizzlies look legit. I mean, I think they have more wins against, uh, you know, teams with 500 records or better uh, than anybody else in the league other than maybe the Suns. Um, they just mow down a bunch of teams, and they – they look the part in doing it. They have a great bench and a great rotation of guys. Basically, everybody's solid. And they're playing with a ton of confidence. They play good defense. Um, so I'm really intrigued by them. I, again, I don't think that they'll necessarily win it. It's pretty unprecedented that a team this young wins it. Um, but I, I cannot wait to see them compete, to see the way that people are going to perceive them as they compete, to see everybody else kind of get their due aside from just Ja which it feels like that's been much of the season on a national scale, kind of what's happening. Um, so I'm just really interested in it. But you're right. I mean, the East in particular is nuts because you've had the Bulls kind of in the first slot for most of the year, quite frankly, in the East, and could very easily probably will, to some extent, fall out, I think, of the top half of the playoff race in the East, which is just – and you had the, the Nets in first for a while. And now, you know, obviously they've had a, a ridiculous slide, but – you know, them breathing a sigh of relief after beating Charlotte to get the eighth spot for now. Just a very weird, weird year where all the teams are within three, four games of each other in the East. I've been, I've been uh, circling around making wild predictions about the Celtics heading into, I'm not, I'm still not there yet. I've, 
I keep talking myself towards it than out of it, but I'm not. A yeah. And so, um, I, to, to finish up, I will actually like you, you bringing up the heat. I think that's a, a kind of a natural way to bring this full circle since we started talking about Riley and, and Eric Spolstra is, is, I mean, uh, obviously in many ways, I mean, in every way, almost a disciple of Riley. Um, and just, if you had any thoughts about like w- the similarities, but also, you know, you mentioned the, the sort of the, the way in which that, that, that maybe Riley could have, have treated Charles Smith more appropriately for his personality. If there's one thing that I think that, that Spolstra, it seems from the outside at least, does better than Riley did, it's, it's, it's sort of that, while still having kind of the high demand, low excuse conditioning first kind of approach, it does seem like he's got a little bit more on almost the, the personal empathy side. But interested if you had any thoughts about like the Spolstra as kind of continuation and uh, growth from sort of the Riley school of coaching. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. And um, I, even, even when the Knicks went from Riley to Don Nelson and then Van Gundy, I've said a lot of times that I – I don't know. I'm not sure if I have a perspective on whether Van Gundy did a better job with the late Knicks than Riley did with those early 90s Knicks teams. Um, I'm not sure it matters what I think about that. But the one thing I say repeatedly is that Jeff had better personal skills than than Riley did, at least at the time. And I, I, I think there's no question that Spolstra, we don't get to see him a whole lot behind the scenes, but there's a reason that guys kind of swear by him. And, you know, it, it, it makes it kind of cringy a little bit to look back at those early big three teams because it was pretty widely out there that they kind of wanted him out. LeBron certainly kind of wanted him out and essentially made that known to Riley. Um, but, you know, the, the whole intentional, I'm going to bump into him and kind of make this be a thing and, and, and stir up something. Um, Spolster's always you know, everybody swears by him. I mean, but also was a guy that worked his way up to where he was from being in the film room and, you know, video guy to, you know, to being the head coach and a guy that can go toe to toe with those guys and talk to them and, and, and lay on them when they're not playing hard, when they're not playing well. Um, but has always done it. And, and granted, like you only get so much from the, you know, the season and review documentaries that uh, are put out by the teams. And you only see so much, generally speaking, when we're looking at the sideline stuff and you're getting the, the mic'd up sessions where you hear something, but I mean, he's just a, a guy that coaches hard, but does it in the most respectful fashion. You, you know, you've basically never heard an opposing coach say a bad word about the guy. It just seems like a good dude. And, um, you know, like I said, you never completely know, but you know, there's something to be said. I think too, you really can't be an asshole when you're a contemporary of the players, meaning like you're in the same age range as those guys. And Spolster's always looked younger than he is, so he's not the youngest guy. But he certainly, because he looks so young, like it would have been very easy for guys to be like, who the hell are you? Because you're the same age as us, you're only a little bit older than us, you came up from the film side, never played in the league, all these sorts of things. Um, but people respect the crap out of him. And I think that uh, Riley had that respect, but it was for a different reason, because he'd won so much. Um, so Spolster didn't have that. But um, I, I do think there's something to be said for someone that works as hard as he does, that also treats these guys well off the court. You walk into a shoot-around. I remember several years ago walking into a shoot-around, would let the guys pick music. But also, and I, I did not know this until after I 
started um, working on the Knicks book, um, Spolster would request to have his own day every now and then to pick the music in practice. And he, the day I walked in, he picked Motown. Um, and I had no idea that Riley's music of choice was Motown. So I wonder now if there, there, there are things there that are very similar uh, between he and Riley. But again, I think the personal skills and the lack of paranoia, which you can't set that aside. You know, Riley, certainly with the Lakers and the Knicks, was so paranoid. And who knows, maybe Spo had that at one point, uh, maybe at one point during the big three. But he, he doesn't wear that on his shoulder the way that I think Riley did during some of those later years with the Knicks and later years with the Lakers because it was a it was a big part of who Riley was. He couldn't really keep it off of him or out of him. Um, and Spolstra just doesn't really seem to wear that as a chip on his shoulder, something that he actively worries about, at least out loud or publicly. I think the only negative thing you'll hear people say about Spolstra is he's probably the, uh, the most persistent bench closeout guy in the league. In terms, of, <laughs> in terms of stomping at an opposing shooter, which is true, something I, something I just hate. But like, good, if that's the good thing, point. You will hear if, that. <laughs> if, if that's the biggest thing I can pick up, then yeah. Uh, I know you've got another thing to get to, so I, I really appreciate the time. We've been we've been circling on doing this for a while, and I kind of wanted to let you get kind of through the initial uh, launch phase, which was, um, I think, if if you uh, um, uh, just listening to the first half hour of the Dunker Spot you did with the. Uh, uh, Stephen Nikias, if you want to hear like the whirlwind tour of a uh, suddenly massively successful author, um, I, I, I smiled ear to ear listening to that, and I won't try to rehash it now. But I encourage people to go listen to that when you're, you're great, man. Thank you so so much for uh, for lifting me up that way. Like I said, you've got so much to be proud of yourself, and it was a real joy to read yours, man. Because I, like you said, we worked on this at the same time. It's not easy, like you said, even doing a bad book probably <laughs> takes a long time, but. Um, you know, I will say in your case that yours was, was great. Um, I appreciate the kind words on mine. I think mine, you know, I'm, I'm certainly proud of it. So to, to do a good one takes a long time, but, um, but yeah, don't, don't ever sell yourself short with that because I think, um, we kick and scream about wanting fans and sometimes other writers wanting them to be smarter and to kind of think about this stuff more deeply. And, uh, it's one thing to say that it's another to write a book that really helps people bridge that gap. And uh, like I said, there, there are, I can't think of any books off the top of my head, certainly not recent ones that, that do a better job of that than yours did. So, so thank you for doing it. But also, I, you know, I look forward to whatever's next for you. Well, again, Chris, thanks a lot and uh, have a good rest of your day and, and uh, really appreciate you stopping by. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on set. Thank you. Talk soon.